Hey everyone, I'm Asha Lapps. And I'm Kurt Henry. And we are your hosts for Live Harmony. Live Harmony is about stories that inspire. Being, doing, and having more. Impacting our communities. Relationships that transform. Learning, growing, and giving. Live Harmony, living the life we love. And loving the life we live. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Check the description to get details on how you can contact us and share your thoughts. Remember to follow this podcast so that you get notified when a new episode is released. Feel free to leave a rating and review as well. Live Harmony is available on all of the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Check your preferred podcast platform for availability. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Live Harmony. You can also email us at info at liveharmony.com. And until next time, continue inspiring each other to live in harmony. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Harmony. My name is Asha Lapps. I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Henry. Hello, everyone. And And welcome, Chris. And welcome to Chris. We have the, the pleasure and honor of interviewing Chris today. Chris is actually somebody that I have gotten to know through my sister and when we were doing the guest list and the people that we wanted to speak to for this podcast you were somebody who who popped up as one of our items and uh, pillars for the podcast are uh, people who are impacting their communities and you're somebody who was was at the top of the list for that so really excited that we were able to uh, get this going so we'll we'll jump right into it and we just want to hear a little bit about you, Chris. Who is Chris Smalling and how did you get your intro to basketball? Thanks, guys. First of all, I'm really honored, you know, to be on here, you know, to be considered uh, for this. So I, I appreciate you guys, first of all. So I would just want to say that. Um, and Ash, it's good. I've known you for years. So it's it's actually good to see you in this um, in this space as well, too. And Kurt, it's nice to meet you. Chris Smalling. I would be remiss if I didn't really start, you know, in Jamaica. Born in Jamaica, came here during the big immigration migration. Uh, white people probably still vote for Trudeau today is because his dad opened up the floodgates, they say. And uh, my parents came here and I came to Canada when I was uh, seven years old, you know, and it was it was such an experience, you know, for me. Number one, I have some uncles back home that I'd never traveled. I'm not even sure if they left the town we're from, but they were telling me stuff like when you get on the plane, there's going to be a button and you push it and a big place of rice and chicken will come out. And you know what I mean? So I get on the plane as a little kid and I'm looking for this button to press and it really doesn't exist. But, you know, I came to Canada with my brothers, you know, we all came over and um, it was an amazing experience, you know, and I'll never forget, you know, coming here from Jamaica. And uh, my parents moved to G-Way, Galloway, we call it then. The youngins call it G-Way today. It's funny, but every time I get a chance to big up G-Way, I always do. I've always thought that Thriller has been the best album of all times. And then I heard Drake say G-Way till I'm resting in one of his songs. And then that became the greatest album of all times because he's mentioning Galloway, you know, little community, Kingston Road and Galloway area that I would say I credit a lot for who I am today. 
you know, enough is not said about um, hardworking communities in Toronto, you know, made up of a lot of different immigrants from different places and the impact that they've had on the city. And uh, Giwe is one of those communities. So um, I, I got, when I came here, we, we first were introduced to hockey. That was short lived because the price kind of eliminated us there. And then we were introduced to soccer and baseball and everything. And it wasn't until maybe I was about 12 years old um, that I was really introduced to basketball. Basketball was very big in the GOA community because at 4301 Kingston Road, they call it the White Building, there was a gym in the basement. And people from all over the GTA used to come and play basketball. And as a little kid, I would, you know, sort of look up to people, you know, as sort of our community heroes. What basketball did was really keep us out of trouble. And I remember I, I made the Galloway Lancers team and I was so happy. And they gave me a little jersey that I used to wash at nights and fold. And I chose number 11 because it was Isaiah Thomas's number. I was so proud. And then finally payment came up. And I remember a coach saying, guys, tomorrow's the deadline to bring the payment. It was either like $20 or $50 for the entire season. And it took me weeks to build up enough courage to go to my dad to ask, you know, for the money. And I remember going to dad and finally, and then after he gave me a speech of how much groceries I could buy at Nobel Farms, you know, I knew at that time that I wasn't getting the money, you know, and again, raising, you know, six kids, you know, was difficult for them. But uh, there's a lady that I'll never forget. Her name is Martha Stewart and sorry, Martha Smith. And she was at the Galloway Community Center. And she came to me and said, why don't you volunteer and you could work it off? And I think that moment sort of changed my life. Um, it introduced me to basketball. Uh, I met so many friends through. And so at an early age, you know, as I said, growing up in Galway, I was introduced to basketball and, you know, introduced to a lot of friends, you know, who I'm still close with today. And, and that sort of changed my life. Thank you for that introduction, Chris. I'm just going to take it a step further. You talked about your introduction to basketball and Martha stepping in to help you out. And that gave you a commitment to want to give back. When did you actually get into a position where you started to mentor other people? If you can just kind of continue with your story and say, okay, this is, this is when it got to the point where I had the opportunity to give back because you're probably playing basketball for quite, a, quite some time before you, you got there. So when did that transition take place? In terms of the giving back piece, I think it was early for me. You know, they had um, Ontario housing at the time. MTHA, Metro Toronto Housing. And so I was a rec coordinator from I was like 14 years old. It really started there. Then, you know, I've never played basketball at a high level. And I always point that out because I'm not ashamed of it. You know what I mean? I try and be very real with kids. I don't give them delusions of grandeur or I can do this because they're not really here for the stories. But what I tell them all the time is that I had um, a coach by the name of Andres, and I'm not even sure he knew basketball very well, but he used to run us for hours. So when I started to coach, and I started to coach in grade 10, you know, I started that early. I started coaching the grade nine girls team. I'll meet parents today, and the parents of the kids I coach used to say, oh, he coached me also. And they'd be like, what that? You know, but, you know, they don't tell the full story that I was in grade 10 and they were in grade nine, you know, what I mean? when I started coaching. So I did that and I decided really, I've always given back, but in 2005, you know, around there I started Advantage Basketball. 
Advantage Basketball, you know, we used to run out of West Hill and, and out of the Durham region as well. It was a way to give back. And starting Advantage Basketball at that time, it was, it was difficult, you know, getting gym space and all that was a difficult thing. But, you know, I was able to recruit some of my friends with me as well, too. And, you know, we went to the government to try and get help. So it was 2005, you know, when I decided I'd give back. I had the pleasure of coaching at West Hill at that time, arguably the greatest school in Canada. You know, I may have some bias there, but, you know, I had the, the privilege of coaching at West Hill and, you know, we, we were successful, you know, even Javon Shepard that was doing the, the Canada games the other day when, when Team Canada was playing was one of my players at the time and just maintaining, they always came in the summer and they always gave back to the other youth. So I would say it was about 2005 where I, I really started an organization that was dedicated to giving back. Let's talk about the journey. So you, you started in 2005 and what are some of the highlights along the way? So what do you, you know, what are the things that stand out? I'm one of the kind of people that I prefer to give than to get, you know, this is just kind of how I am. I'm, you know, I love giving, but it's hard. So in 2011, let's say I was given the SIL app award. I didn't know who SIL app was at all. Turns out that thank God for Google. I found out and um, he was a, an Olympian, a Canadian Olympian. So it's a volunteer award. I was nominated by Ontario Basketball. Nomin Ontario Basketball nominated 7,000 volunteers. And we went up against hockey, soccer. You know, when all was said and done, it was over 90,000 volunteers. And I ended up winning the award, you know, for the top volunteer in Ontario. So that was one of, of the things in, in 20, in 2000 and four to 2006 I coached West Hill for the first time West Hill went to Offsa and we medaled we got the bronze the following year we got the gold sorry the, the silver and then I went to Pickering coach with David Joseph Ron Parfit where we met Corey Joseph DeVoe and Joseph and those guys and we ended up winning the gold medal there you know and so it, it all stems from starting that organization we've also had over 300 kids that have received scholarships through the program. And I'm extremely proud of that to see how it's really affected lives, you know, and how one person's dedication, you know, can, can cause a ripple effect. You know, uh, I love a quote that I, Mother Teresa has used and she says, I can't change the world, but I can throw a pebble into a water and starts a ripple, you know, and it has an effect. And I think that the organization has done that. We've had um, players that have branched out from the Advantage organization have done well. Um, we have over a hundred university graduates, you know, that started out in the program also. So um, those are some of the areas that I'm proud of. What I'm probably most proud of is my relationships with my players. You know, that stems back from almost 30 years and I stay in touch. I stay in contact with them. And that's always been if you're an advantage, whether you were amazing at basketball or you were terrible, didn't matter to me at all. You know, it's an opportunity to affect a life. So um, those are some of the things that I'm most proud of. I was just reminiscing on your quote around being a pebble and making ripple effects. So Chris, being that pebble, who are you looking to impact? What's the ripple effect that you're looking to make? Uh, if you were to kind of summarize that, how do you look at that environment that you're impacting? 
No, I've mostly worked with students, young people from marginalized communities, let's say um, in the GTA. That ripple effect impacts everybody that crosses my path. So I don't want to go out there to impact high level athletes or high level basketball players. Because if you do that, you're going to miss so many along the way. And I'll give you an example. The NBA has like 400 players that play in the league. And so they say you have a better chance of winning the lottery than making the NBA. So if you focus on the high level athletes, you miss out on all the others that you pass along the way. So if you try and impact the one percentile, you're going to miss out on the 99. So these come in, the people that I impact come in different forms, anybody in the community. And it doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are. Once our path cross, that wave, that ripple cost leads me to people. And whoever I come across, you know, because I don't believe in luck, chance, coincidence, all this thing. I believe in there's a purpose, there's a destiny to life. And so everybody we meet, you know, I try and, and impact. And as an example, every day I tell people how wonderful they are. You know what I mean? How great they are as I come across. I try and say even a kind word and something that simple can have a, a big impact. Oh, so nice. Love it. And congratulations on all, all of the all the success, the tangibles and the intangibles. And you'll just want to dive a little bit deeper into the mentoring. So what would you say is your kind of philosophy that you mentor with or coach with or lead with? I believe that everything starts with love. And so I really concentrate on love. To be a really good mentor, for instance, I, I just really think you need two things. You need love for people and you need to care and you need your time. So love and your time. So I start there as a philosophy. I try and look to a need more than anything else. And it doesn't matter what a person looks like doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter any of that for me. I look at a human being and I, and I say to myself, how can I help them? You know, and we just live in a world and especially in a social media world where like you get canceled like this, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I just think that we're judged so heavily in this world that I think that, you know, if you show somebody love, it helps. And, I, and I'll give you a, a bit of an example. Not my proudest moment, but once, you know, somebody cut me off on the road and I sort of chased them down, which is kind of out of character, but you know, it is what it is. I chased them down and they rolled down the window and he turned to me and he said, sorry, man. And as angry as I was, you know, that just calmed me down, you know, because he gave a kind word. The point I'm trying to make is that that's what love does. It really starts with love. It starts with putting others first ahead of yourself. If I look at what true philosophy is, and, and again, it goes to leadership, you know, anybody that wants to be a really good leader must first be serve others and, you know, care about others' needs. And, and that's what a leader really does. We have this thing that, you know, if you have a strong bravado, you speak loud, you've got a James Errol Jones or a Barry White voice, you know what I mean? You're very stern, you know, then that makes you a, a mentor or a leader. And my philosophy is a little different. It's, you know, showing people, um, showing them that you love them and that you care. And I would say that that's what starts my philosophy as a leader. That's amazing. And you, you answered my next question about your thoughts on 
your thoughts on leadership. So I love that. Everything starts with love, love and time and leadership starts with serving. Anything else that you want to share on, on leadership or do you think that pretty much? Uh... Um, no, I, I, you know, there's people that I really looked up to as leaders. I'm going to mention three. One is Malcolm X. I discovered Malcolm X in grade seven. And I discovered Malcolm X because I was one of those kids that read everything in the library. Whatever book was popular, I read. There was a book that was always out of the library, grade seven, grade eight. So I asked the librarian, when this comes back in, can you save it for me? And she did. And she never told me what the book was. And I started reading and it's called, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. <laughs> and it's really about a girl having her menstrual cycle. <laughs> and so I'm in grade seven and eight. So you can imagine why it was always out. But the point I'm trying to make is I read everything. And I, you know what, now looking back, I like the fact that the librarian never told me what the book was about. She just left it up to me, you know, and the autobiography of Malcolm X came up also. And it really changed my life because, you know, coming from Jamaica and coming to Canada, I wrestled with a lot. There was, there was a lot of discrimination. My nose was always too big. My lips were too big. I was too black. My hair is too nappy. They used to call me peas in school because they said my hair, when I rolled it up, it just went back. It looked like peas. So there was a time, honestly, where being a black person, I was not proud. At times, I wish I wasn't black. And I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and changed my life. And why it really impacted me and changed my life is that he was so strong and so confident and so proud. And what's interesting about the autobiography of Malcolm X is his father was a Garveyist. He studied the philosophy of Marcus Garvey and then passed it on to Malcolm X. So I say Malcolm X is one of the leaders. So a leadership style, Dr. King, Martin Luther King, and his philosophy of love and nonviolence to accomplish what he did. And then the example of Jesus and showing love to people that don't even like you or don't look like you. And so when I look toward leadership, I really like to gather from true leaders in history and what they've done. And if you look at those three leaders, they've always put others ahead of themselves. You know, they never made themselves bigger than the cost. I would recommend, I recommend to young people. So anytime you got in trouble on my basketball team, you read the autobiography of Malcolm X. <laughs> you know, so some of them either hate it or love it, you know, but I always put it on. And so I really look to people in history as leaders and, you know, I, I'll, and then nobody has been a bigger leader for me than, you know, my parents, you know, my mom and dad. So I, I really look towards leaders like that. And a little more on your mom and dad then. What did they teach you? How much time do you guys have? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We're going we're gonna to come back to the family stuff. So hold on to that for one second. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll delve a little bit more deeper into the family. Um, sure. A question about uh, a little bit more on the mentorship. So how do you break through to youth that have potentially come into your contact with you that have had difficulty? Um, um, and, and I was going to actually ask you to, you know, sometimes we have I think language is very important. So sometimes we have terms that we use for people. So, you know, I had quickly put down just to keep the, the my memory and the note there as, as troubled youth, but I'm like, I don't want to use that kind of terminology or an at-risk youth. Like, so talk to us about how is a respectful way to address somebody that might be having difficulty and how do you get through to someone um, who comes into your, your space? 
I'm happy you say that because, you know, honestly, I don't like to use labels, you know, because what I've found from my experience is you give a kid a label and, and a lot of times they act it up and they try to be that person that everybody tells them they are. Being in elementary school, we had this kid and every time I look back, sometimes the elementary school saddens me, you know, because we had this kid that used to get picked on so much. And they used to put his lunch, his sandwiches in the drinking fountain and stuff. And after a while, he just started doing it before everybody came. And so that was his way of, of kind of fighting back or his way of, you know, having them leave him alone. And so in terms of me, in terms of labels, what I really try and do with reaching young people and, and whether they're, they're a challenge or not, I think what mentors need to realize is that that kid that just shows up, does everything right, for sure. It's great. We wish everyone in life was like that. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So the first thing I do, I use myself as the example. I was one of those kids that I hated school. So in my grade 9, 10 year, I missed like 230 classes. And when I met with the principal, <laughs> he said he didn't even know we had 230 classes. You know what I mean? I missed a lot. Growing up as well, too, I was one of those kids that was curious. We started like, you know, stealing cars and, you know, we got to a certain age. The point I'm trying to make is... I give them my story and I use empathy and I put myself in their position because I've been there. And where a lot of people don't necessarily like to tell the stories that make them look bad or, you know, look, I don't mind at all because I want them to know that, you know, they're not strange. They're, they're not weird. And I'll, and I'll just say sometimes, even in religious organizations, you know, sometimes young people can't relate because everybody's perfect. You know what I mean? And then, hey, I'm the only one that's perfect. So I'm kind of strange. I'm kind of weird. And so what I try and do is let, especially young people know that, you know, you're not strange. You're not weird because I've gone through it and I've experienced it, you know, and I've turned my life around. So there's such an opportunity for you in terms of uh, mentorship and connecting with people that let's say they say are difficult. I'll share my story. And then the other point is I try and be very, very patient. You have to be able to connect with someone to really have that kind of impact. Like I'll meet somebody that says, hey, you know, Chris, you know, you're really good with young people. I have this nephew, he's acting out. I'm going to give you my key, <laughs> show up at midnight, just knock the door, tell them she, I sent you and just talk to them, you know, and I'm like, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's building relationships. I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Dr. Chris Spence. That was the director of the Toronto School Board at one point. Great, great man. And he started a program called Boys to Men. You know, the program was to have teachers connect with one or two students, maybe three in their class and, and build on it. And so I was a part of that program as well, too. And so it was working with, you know, troubled youth, let's say, you know, and that's always a challenge to me. And I love it because, you know, I've, I've been the black sheep of my family growing up, you know, so I, I kind of welcome other black sheeps. And I feel like I was the president and CEO of the Black Sheep Club, you know, and so I kind of take them through my journey. And then I really listen. And I know, you know, it seems simple that, yeah, we have two ears and one mouth, so let's listen more. One of the greatest mistakes we make is that we don't listen or we listen long enough while we're rehearsing in our heads what we want to say as soon as they finish talking. And honestly, I listen and I really let them vent because a lot of times somebody just wants to talk. You know, so again, connecting, if you're connecting with somebody that's considered to be difficult, take time and you have to try and find some kind of mutual ground. 
You know, I've been fortunate enough where, you know, sometimes it's basketball, but what if they're not into basketball? They're into arts or maybe they're not into any of that. And I really want them to know most of all that I care. That has to come across more powerful than anything. You can't reach somebody unless first they know that you care about them. And it's received differently. You know, when somebody that you know loves you and cares about you tells you something, it's going to hit you differently than somebody that you don't know or you're not sure about. So uh, once again, I, I really use myself as that example for them. Great. Fantastic. And you had told me a story a couple of days ago, and I just wanted to ask about second chances, giving someone a second chance or a third chance. Uh, why is it important that we give someone who has perhaps made a mistake or had some difficulty another chance? Great, great, great question. One, as I said, I feel like I've been given tons of chances, not second, not third, not fourth, tons of chances. Why it's important to give back is, you know, Muhammad Ali had said that if you're the same man at 50 that you were at 20, then you've just wasted 30 years of your life, basically. And so it tells us that we grow, you know, as individuals. What I thought years ago, I don't think that now. And so we have to give people second chances. If Malcolm Little would have never become Malcolm X, later Hal Haj, Malik El Shabazz, if he wasn't given a chance? What if they canceled him, you know, in his teenage years or in his early 20s when he did crime? You know, so it's important to give people second chances. And, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you a story. I worked with one young man in school and, you know, he was about 19, 20, trying to finish high school. And he was really at our school because that was one of the conditions of his parole that he needs to be at school. And every day I used to say, oh man, you got, you got to stick it out. You know, you got to stick it out. Finally, he stuck it out, graduated. And maybe outside of his mom, I was like the proudest person on earth. I said to him, you coming to graduation? And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, graduation's soft. Graduation's soft. Like, you know, I'm not going to walk across the stage, you know? So I said, listen, I'll make a deal with you. Why don't you want to do? He says, I don't have a shirt. Boom, got him a white shirt. Next. I don't have a tie. Got him a blue tie. Boom. Next. Uh, I don't have uh, pants. Got him pants. Got him shoes. And I said to him, listen, do it for your mother. Because, you know, you've been in trouble a little bit. and Your mother's always stayed with you. Do it for more than us. So even do it for your mother. So he says, nah, you know, it's going to feel stupid. I said to him, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you $100 just to walk across the stage. 30 seconds. Where are you going to make $100 in 30 seconds in your life? So he says, okay, deal. Gets his diploma, walks across the stage, holds it up. His mom started to cry. He started to cry. He was so happy. It was such a proud moment for him. He walked across the stage and then he comes and he says, listen, you don't have to give me the $100. Mind you, I'm not sure I was going to give him the $100. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he said, you don't have to give me the $100. I said, what are you going to do with your life? He says, I don't know. About three years ago, he contacted me. He graduated from Centennial College, a child and youth worker degree. If a kid like that never got a second chance, if a Malcolm X, Malcolm Little never got a second chance, and if a Chris Smalling never got a second second chance, then we wouldn't have, we can't live in a world where everyone's perfect. It's not a real world, number one. And I'm very big on growth, helping people along the journey because we grow at different um, times and different stages in our lives. And so that's a young man there's a guy I grew up with in G-Way that, you know, he was such a criminal. And I was 100% positive that I don't know what's going to happen to his life. And I was at school and he came and he was the head of IT. <laughs> you know what I mean? Years later, he was the head of IT. And I was like, what? I was in shock. But you know what? 
he told me that somebody gave him an opportunity, gave him a second chance. And so a lot of people in this world have been given second chance. So it's so important to give others second chances because you never know what they're going to do with it. Oh my goodness. So powerful. So, so powerful. I love that. Next question. So um, you talked about the relationships that you have with your players and the relationships that you've continued to have, whether they're still playing with you or not. And why was it important for you to, to be available to them? One, I remember this is one thing Joy told me. She's like, you know, Chris would say that his players would be able to call him anytime. And that really, you know, that stuck with me over the years. Uh, why was it important for you to be available to you? And then how did you balance that with, you talked about keeping parents and potentially fathers who were absent that you tried to reach out to them and, and keep them engaged. So how did you balance you being that one to be dependent on, but also wanting to pull uh, their parents also in, into the mix? Yeah, I, I think it's so important to be accessible just because conflicts and crisis don't just happen between nine and five. You know what I mean? And then everything shuts down at six o'clock. Sometimes it's 2 a.m. where I get phone calls. And I've said to my family, and that means you guys are going to share me with a bunch of people, but I'll never neglect you. Two in the morning, the phone rings, you know, and, and it's a young person that they need to talk or they're in crisis. And as I said, just the joy of helping someone, I jump out of bed and I'm on my way. You know, I got a call um, last year from uh, one of the guys that I call, and he's in his 30s now, and he was sitting outside of a courthouse and he needed somebody to talk to. And he called me and he was crying. And he says, coach, I know, I know I can depend on you. I said, absolutely. You know, and so he knew he can depend on me. And so being there for someone is, is, is incredibly important because as I said, I've had guys that I've worked with that still didn't do the right thing. I've had some guys that have been deported back to their countries or have been arrested. Even when they were incarcerated, I used to visit. And even now, if they're deported, I still call. They still call me and they know that whenever they need me, I will definitely be there. The thing about human beings, once you feel or get to a point that you've lost hope, you're going to give up. And, and that's why I really believe that I'm accessible anytime because I don't want them to give up. And sometimes that there's a thin line between that. I will always help anyone. The, the only thing that I say is that you always have to be respectful. If you're disrespectful, then, you know, I'm not going to work with you because no one should be disrespected. But when someone's all there, so always there uh, for somebody, it's very important. And what I try and do in mentorship, especially when it comes to parents, mentors have to remember you're not the parent. You're there to come alongside, not to take over. Even in something so um, making such a sacrifice as helping, the ego can get in the way. You know, I'm Chris Smalling. I can just let me in. I'll just, you know, it doesn't work that way. And I don't like to use terms like deadbeat dads and, you know, stuff like that. I try and connect with parents also. Been doing it for a long time. As an example, now I'll use the basketball example. If we go to a tournament, and say a division one coach wants to give a kid a scholarship and they call me, you know, we want to give this kid a scholarship. I say to them, first, I need you to talk to their parents. I want you to get on the phone with their parents, tell them what you're telling me. I want the parents to get a feeling for you. And if the parents are cool, then I talk back to you. I don't want to disclude parents out of anything that I do. And especially fathers. I've always been raised with my dad. My dad's always been home, but I have a soft spot for kids that weren't raised with their fathers, especially. 
And so when I meet a father, and especially in our, in our Black communities, I always stress the importance of being in a kid's life. And I always say this, if they said, listen, we're going to give Black people $10 million, each family for all that was done from the past in North America, or they said, we're going to make sure that every father stays home. The value is going to be every father staying home or staying in the lives of their kids, whether you're in the home or not, but staying in the lives. And so when I meet a father, I'll tell him, one, you know, I try and find out, you know, what their situation is. And I compliment them. Hey, you've done a great job on this kid. This kid's amazing or, you know, that sort of stuff where they really need you or they look up to you. And I try and do that. And I tell them, listen, you can access me anytime. Not going to judge you on anything, you know, and it's funny, but Jay-Z tells this story and he talks about his dad and Jay-Z said his dad left them. And he said, the weird thing was his dad only lived a few communities over, but he never saw him. Jay-Z is now a millionaire. He's a famous rapper. So he said he set out to find his father to have a conversation. And he said part of it, he wanted to meet him and to sort of tell him off and to show him how successful he's become in life. And he said he meets his dad. He said a couple of things happened. He said, one, his dad was way taller than he thought. Big, strapped and tall man. And I know what that's like. You just don't want to just say any anything. You know what I mean? In those cases. And then he said his father started to talk and started to explain to him what happened to him in life. And he said he broke down and it was so emotional. He felt like a little kid. He had his daddy there for him. He says that, you know, they wept together. It was one of the best moments of his life. And a few months later, his dad passed away. I I understand the impact of a parent being in a kid's life. So I don't want to deprive that. I I remember I was mentoring this young man and and his father was, was still in the home. You know, he was in my program and I used to mentor him and his mom called me one time and she says, listen, I have two tickets to the Blue Jay game. I would like you and him to go. And I said, nah, I said, his dad should go. And she said, ah, his dad's not into baseball. I said, do me a favor, give him the first option to go to the game with his son. I don't want, a mentor should never take those kind of joys away from a parent. And so the father went to the game with him and the father appreciated it. You know, you have some cases, I've mentored a, a, one of my guys, Javal, and I've mentored him since he was 10 years old. His dad passed away when he was three years old. So that was a little bit different. Your father is in the home or in your life where, again, I've had parents that want me to basically take the place of that father. And I always tell them that that's always a wrong approach for mentorship. As you mentor, you have to consider everybody involved. Everyone involved has feelings and everyone involved has journeys. So if it's possible, and it's not always possible, some dads just don't want to be involved. And that's why I say, you know, in my opinion, outside of maybe say the the gift of salvation or something or, or God himself, the greatest thing the world has ever known is a mom. Father can leave, guys can leave, and a mother's left holding the bag. That's why to me, it's important to involve. I was um, in a group called Girlfriends. And it was girls like grade six to grade 10. And they wanted me in it. And I tried to get out of it. And then one of the mothers called me and she said, listen, my daughter doesn't have a father figure at home. So you being a part of girlfriends (laughs) is really helping her. She got married a few months ago. And I remember her calling me one time to come to Tim Hortons to meet this guy that she was getting engaged to. And I sat there and she told me about him. And then after the conversation, she's like, come over here. And he was sitting at like the next table, unbeknownst to me, you know? And so he came over, she introduced him. I felt great that she thought enough about me to include me 
into the life. So as I said, I, I never want to replace a parent. You'll do more good than harm to try and keep the parents involved. Great story, Chris. Great story. I enjoyed Thank listening you. to them. And what you just talked about in terms of parents is kind of where we're going next. When you talked about trying to play basketball and your parents bringing up the price of groceries, I started to have flashbacks, you know, because my parents immigrated around the same time as your parents do during that era. So I wanted to just take this to a point in which what did, you know, the experience of your parents being around and your siblings as well shape who you are today as a coach and as a mentor? Every time I meet a young person, and if they have some manners in them, and I meet their parents, I always say to their parents, I love your kid, great kid, and I know kids don't raise themselves. So it's coming from somewhere. A parent cared enough to instill values, you know, into a child's life. Parenting right now is a lot different than when I was growing up. You know, they used to have what they call the right hand of fellowship that they would give to you, the, clearly the right hand of fellowship. And that was involved in the parenting. Not so much today. My father is the greatest man I've ever met. Hardworking. Early, he taught us the value of hard work because I used to watch him or not watch him because he was getting up at 5 a.m. while I was sleeping. But he got up at 5 a.m., got to work early and worked. And it didn't matter what was happening. It doesn't matter what the snow was like, if he had the fever, if he had flu, racism that he faced. He always went out there and he worked hard and he showed us a lot of love. My father has impacted me so much because he's, we used to have, our home used to be the original Deaf Comedy Jam because my dad is like the funniest man on earth. After dinner every day, we used to gather together as a family and he just used to tell stories from back home and we would laugh and nobody was laughing harder than my mom. And I'm sure she's heard these stories like a thousand times, you know? And so he really taught us those values and it's so important. And I love my father so much. I remember I was going to um, work one day and I was listening to a uh, speaker, Chuck Swindoll, and he was talking about heaven. And he's talking about seeing his father. And he goes, I know a lot of you guys are going to heaven to listen to harps, but he goes, I'm going to heaven to listen to my dad play his harmonica. And the tears ran down my face at the very thought of how much I love my dad. You know what I mean? And the impact that he has in our lives. And, and that's the, the other thing, you know, and I'll just pause for a moment to say, I tell players and youth, I mentor, I love them all the time. And first they're like, all right, thank you, coach. Cool. You know, da, da, da. no, no, there's pause, you know, that's how they start out. And then after it turns to thank you. And then it turns to love you too, because it's something that they don't hear every day. So it seems foreign. And I always tell them, you know, I'm big on Instagram, love you enough. Enough is a very big thing for me. We learned that. Now, as I said, so my dad, the strongest man I ever met, my mom is the strongest person I ever met. She's the greatest leader I've ever met. And she led, so she's not a pushover and also has the biggest heart in the world. It's tough to balance it. Somehow she was able to balance it. And she's always taught us about forgiveness. Don't be bitter, let things go, love everybody give people a second chance and a third and a fourth chance. And from the time I've known myself, we've always had people living in our house, family, strangers. My parents would take in strays and a lot of these strays end up becoming my friends from the community. You know what I mean? I had nowhere to go. So our house was always that house. My mom would make dinner and everybody because there's like six of us and friends. My mom would cook and write a person's name on the plate. Even my friends had their names written on top of their plate with a yellow sticky note, you know? And so she really taught us love. The funny thing about my parents, 
I don't ever remember really seeing them argue, which is out of this world to me. I've tried it a couple of times, but I haven't been able to perfect it. You know what I mean? At all. You know, my wife will tell you I haven't been able to perfect it. You know, we don't argue all the time. We don't argue a lot, but I've never seen my parents argue. And so one day, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, guys, what happened? How can you guys never argue? And they said they made a vow when they got married that they would never argue in front of their kids. They said one day don't argue that much. And I think my dad's humor saves him a lot, you know, because it's hard to be angry with him when he's always making jokes. They're really, really best friends. You go by the house, they sit on the couch for hours and hours and they tell the same stories and they watch All in the Family and Little House on the Prairie. And you know what I mean? All those throwback shows, Three's Company, you know, they watch all those throwback shows and they still sit there and they're best friends. And my dad told me a story one time I thought was the cutest thing. He said sometimes he'd get tired at night and he'd go into his bed and he said he felt so guilty leaving my mom on the couch, you know? And he said he could hear her playing her guitar in the living room and singing, you know what I mean? And it, it would have such an impact on him. That's how much they love each other. They have the most amazing relationship and they've raised me and my brothers in the same way. I talk to my brothers almost every single day, even as grown men. We can do a lot of things, but the one thing we couldn't do was fight each other. If you fought each other, you'd get licks. And I'm not talking spanking that we've come to know today. I'm talking real licks. You know what I mean? And that's where my dad didn't drop licks often, but when he did, you knew it was coming. And a lot of times it was for how we acted with our siblings. Today, my brothers are my best friends. I want to call them by name. I want to thank Cliff and Drew and Devin and Mike and Elijah, because even now, the valuable lessons that they've taught me and, and the, the one principle that I always remember my parents said, if you have a conflict with someone, go to them first and let them know you have a conflict with them as opposed to going to somebody else. Because they say you could clear that up right away. I think human nature, we want to share it with somebody. And so I've always remembered that. And I've used it in a lot of my relationships. If I have a problem with somebody, I don't tell somebody else. And even if somebody is close as my wife or my kids, like I don't tell them first. I go to that person first and try and solve it there. So that they know, listen, I'm not going to be chatting you behind your back. I'm not going to be doing anything. And I think those principles I learned from my parents. No, thank you for that. Before I go on to the, the next question, for those that don't have a Jamaican background, enough means lot. So I love Absolutely. you lots is another way of saying it. <laughs> just wanted to make sure that was clear for them out there. And now, I appreciate you being like bilingual. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, so that yes. you can reach the audience that aren't <laughs> bilingual. So the next thing that I have is taking it a step further. You talked about being married, you have your wife, you have, you have a son as well. And so I'm curious, how does your experience in the community impact how you parent? Okay, that's a good question. I have to give a lot of credit to my wife. I always say she's the real MVP in our house. You know, she's the one that keeps it together you know, keeps everything together. And we've been great and we've been blessed, you know, we have two boys and a daughter. It's such an amazing experience. And there's nothing I love more in the world than being a dad. That's my favorite thing on earth. I'll show you how much I love that is I worked with for TD Bank for 10 years as an analyst. And after a while, I used to travel. So I'd travel and only come home on the weekends. I left, <laughs> you know, I basically left the job. I'm not one of those people that's motivated by money at all. Money doesn't motivate. And as I say, like just the, the impact on a person's life is not going to be monetary. 
And nobody's going to look back and say, man, you know, he had such a big house and a big car. And you know how much money that guy had? As much as they're going to say, because it doesn't matter. The, the Egyptians tried it. They tried taking their wealth with them when they died. And they realized that it didn't work. They mummified themselves and they, you know, and all that happened was their treasures got stolen. So saying that to say, I really like parenting. Now, the advice I'm going to give parents, and I benefit from this, the best way to parent in this time is how you coach. Coaching and parenting go hand in hand, in my opinion. And what I mean by that is, if you have a player and you only point out the negative that they do, then you're going to discourage them. If you have a player that all you do is tell them all the good they do and you never point out the, the areas, the issues that they need to work on, then you're not going to have a balanced player. So I think parenting is a lot like that. I think it's important to keep a balance with your children. But most of all, as I said, I go back years. I have, I'm one of the people that when I was in, especially in high school, I didn't really need to study because if I learned something once, it was always there. And I have, you know, memories of like two years old. I remember, you know, my son Christopher would fall. And I had friends that'd be like, yo, he's a soldier, you know, don't pick him up. Let him get up. He's a soldier. In my head, I'm like, no, he's not a soldier. That's number one. You know, and two, I remember falling as a child and my man, my mom picking me up. And it literally felt like the hands of God picked me. It was like the greatest feeling on earth. So I never wanted to rob my kids of that sort of experience. And you can't parent two kids the same because they're all different. Joel got 90s and you're getting 60s. You know, obviously my parents' motivational style was a little different. Growing up then, Jamaican parents telling you you'll never amount to nothing was motivation. You know what I mean? That was a, a type of, a form of motivation. You know, because you take it and like, I'm going to prove you wrong. You say that to kids nowadays, they're like, okay, well, if you don't believe in me, I'm just going to quit. So it's a little bit different. I say, you know, in terms of parenting, I, I was at a basketball tournament coaching a girls team, grade nine to 12. And I had the youngest girl on our team, Adriana. I was at a tournament. She kept messing up on defense. So I called a timeout. I was like, timeout, timeout. I was like, Adriana, you keep messing up on defense. What's going on? And I looked at Adriana. She was crying. Tears rolling down her eyes. And I'm like, oh my God, Chris, you're such a bully, you know? So then I hugged her like this, you know, in my arm. And I was like, guys, listen, don't let Adriana do all the work out here. Like pick up the slack, help her out. I coach and parent almost the same way. And I always say to people, if I'm not going to do it for my own children, I'm not going to do it for you. In parenting at home, I, I use a lot of my coaching philosophies and I have to remember. So when, when they were playing basketball, you know, Shanice, my dad, she was very good at basketball. She got a scholarship to Texas, you know, Christopher and Jalen, not so much. I remember going to games and I was coaching Centennial College at the time. And I'd go to games and I literally said nothing. I remember signing Christopher up for soccer when he was like four or five. And he's one of those kids that is very systematic. So he kept asking me on the way to the field, what if the ball hits me in my face? I said, Christopher, why are you even saying this? Why would the ball hit you in your face? No word of a lie. Very first game, the ball was on the ground. This kid toe punched the ball and you could practically hear the ball cutting the wind. Sure enough, Christopher's there and the ball comes to his face, hits him right in the face, drops him on his back. And I'm like, what are the chances of this even happening, right? You know, he, he gets up, you know, those cries where your mouth is moving, but no sound is coming out. It was one of those. And as his coach ran towards him, he ran towards me. He said, Daddy. I said, come here. It's okay. You know, you're going to be fine. 
I told him, I said, you know, you, you know, you got to get back on the field. You know, this is where the coaching side parenting comes in. I said, you know, you have to get back on the field. He did. But for that entire year, if the ball was on one side of the field, he was on the other side. And a couple of times the ball came to his foot and he literally jumped over it and ran. And at the end of the game, I put him on my shoulder and I tell him how proud I was. You're amazing out there. Some parents go to games and they're the loudest on the sideline. Get it done and do this. Honestly, I'm not about that. I'm really about encouraging. And I really sit down and my kids will tell you, like, I'll really sit down and hear them out. Mind you, I'm not always going to agree with what they're going to say. I'm going to be stern at times where I need to be, but I'm definitely going to hear you out. So I think parents, parenting and coaching goes hand in hand. Nice. Love it. Love it. Love it. Last sort of question to, to start to wrap us up. What is the legacy that you would like to leave? What do you want to be remembered for? What I want to be remembered for the most is somebody that loves others. I've won off some medals, OBA titles, received awards, been here, been there. None of that matters to me. I don't want to be remembered as a coach. I want to be remembered as someone that cared and someone that loved others and was always there for them when they could be. If that's my legacy, I'm very happy with that. And that's the greatest thing I can accomplish in life. And honestly, that means more to me than being a billionaire or a millionaire, knowing that I, I really uh, did my best to impact lives. And, and I will say, to be honest with you, when, when we talk about what makes a, a good teacher or what makes a good mentor, for instance, I've taken a lot of flack for this recently. And I talk about, you know, our inner city kids, marginalized students, black kids. A black teacher is not the best teacher for a black kid. A teacher that cares is the best teacher for any child. You could be a Black teacher and not care. You know, you're a horrible teacher. You could be a Black teacher that cares and you're a great teacher. What I say is once you're a teacher that cares, you're an amazing teacher for any student and you're going to impact lives. And I remember a teacher, I'll never forget her. She was my like grade two teacher. Again, this goes to how cultures are different. You know, we came up from Jamaica, we all wore suits and ties and shiny shoes. Your mom used to practically shine your forehead with like Vaseline. I came to Canada and I'm in class and my teacher says, guys, tomorrow's Halloween. So don't forget you have to dress up. I said, whoa, cool. I went home and I told my mom, the teacher said we have to dress up. So she said, okay. We didn't know anything about Halloween and dressing up. So while I'm walking down going to school, I'm seeing kids just like witches and goblins and ghosts. And I'm kind of freaked out. I don't even know what's going on. And I'm here in a suit. So I get to school and the kids are laughing. Like Christopher's not dressed up. And my teacher said, Christopher is dressed like a businessman. Let me tell you guys something. I never knew what a businessman was. I wasn't sure if it was a bird, a building, or a field. All I knew is the kids stopped laughing. My teacher saved me that day by having empathy and showing that she cares. And so some of the greatest teachers that have impacted me, I, I don't care what what uh, nationality or race or let's say color they are, as long as you care about a child, that makes a great teacher and it makes a great mentor. We only got a couple more questions for you. The next one is, how can they follow you? Where can they find you? If they're listening here, they are listening to all these words of wisdom. Where do they find you? I'm on Instagram, Chris Smalling, C-H-R-I-S-S-M-A-L-L-I-N-G, only because people always mess up my last name from smiley to smelly to everything. And it's just smalling. It's just small with the ING. And when you Googled Chris Smalling in the past, it was just me. And then Chris Smalling, the soccer player in England, just ruined all that. 
You know what I mean? So if you Google Chris Smalling, he'll show up, you know, but if you Google basketball, then you'll see some pictures of me also. He'll still show up, but you'll still see. So I'm on Instagram at Chris Smalling. Also, my organization, Advantage Basketball, we still are active. We still give back. We're on Instagram at Advantage Titans. I probably have the most former players that come back to coach and mentor out of any organization. I'm proud of that. And I'm also um, the director at, at Jay Addison. I'm for the boys basketball. So Jay Addison men's V-ball as well too, or Jay Addison school. You can find me there along with, I'm always in the community giving back. I just partnered with Patrick Shaw that runs Sisters Keepers and Brothers Keepers. During the pandemic now, since it started, they've been giving out food to those that don't have food, you know, and it's so important to quote, quote, um, Robert Nessa Marley, hungry man is an angry man. So we're doing that. We're partnering. So I'm always in the community, always willing to give back and always willing to give time um, to listen. And so we ask everybody the same closing question. What are the first words or thoughts that come to mind when you hear the word harmony? What comes to mind when I hear harmony is just unity. It's working together. It, it reminds me of the African proverb that says it takes a village to raise a child. It's a coming together to accomplish something and accomplish something great. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your nationality is, what your gender is. None of that really matters. You know, once you have harmony, it's coming together. And I'll use one of my favorite artists. Her name is Joy Laps. And they call her the princess of the pan. And I remember the first time I heard her play, I was hooked like phonics. She was absolutely amazing. If you give me those two sticks and put me up there, I can clear a room easy. I can't carry a note in a glass. That's not my gift. My greatest gift is clapping hands. I can clap these hands like crazy. So when I hear people like say Joy are able to play and use instruments to create something so beautiful, I think of life, think of human beings, I think of journeys, and I think of coming together in harmony in that way. So when I hear of harmony, that's what comes to mind, just creating something beautiful, even though we're all coming from different backgrounds. Ooh, love that, love that, love that. Well, we have now uh, come to the end. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Chris. You, you have uh, imparted so much wisdom. I know that the audience will be really, really inspired. Thank you for all the work that you do. Shout out to all of your, your players and the students that uh, have come in contact with you and as they continue to carry out the ripple that you, you have started and continue to impact other people. Thanks, Chris. It was a pleasure meeting you and a pleasure getting to know you. And I'm sure the, the listeners are in for a treat when they hear the knowledge you have to drop today. I appreciate you guys very much, you know, and I appreciate you taking the time out to interview me or better yet to have a conversation because it didn't feel like I interview at all. It, <laughs> it really felt like three friends just catching up and talking. Thank you very much. And again, I'd like to give a shout out to all my players in the past, to my Advantage crew, my J. Addison crew, you know, and everybody that's involved as well, too. I want to thank them very much.